welcome to <coughs> excuse me. Welcome to the London Aesthetics Forum. Before we get started, I just want to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for their funding for this series. We are very happy to welcome Dominic McGuire Lopez um, from the University of British Columbia to give uh, the first talk. Is this the first talk of our term? I think it is. The first talk of the term. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I could spend quite a long time going over Dom's very many accomplishments, but I will just mention a few. So Dom has written a number of books. The latest one is Being for Beauty, Aesthetic Agency and Value, which I think just came out, basically. Um, previously, Aesthetics on the Edge, where philosophy meets the human sciences, a topic that I think is of special interest. Four Arts of Photography from 2016, Beyond Art from 2014, A Philosophy of Computer Art from 2009, Sight and Sensibility, Evaluating Pictures from 2005, and Understanding Pictures from 1996. So that's it for books. <laughs> Next we can get into articles now. I won't, I won't give you a list. Dom has published widely, as you might imagine, on pictorial representation and perception, the aesthetic and epistemic value of pictures, including photographs, images in general, the ontology of art, computer art, and aesthetic value. He's the Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of the Department of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. And he's also the Vice President of the Canadian Philosophical Association, a past president of the American Society for Aesthetics, is on a variety of editorial boards, and has won a variety of awards, including being a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a Guggenheim Fellow. Um, I think that that's probably enough to intimidate everybody who doesn't know what a nice person you are. Uh, and so I'm very pleased uh, to introduce Dom today in particular for his foray into the history of philosophy, which is this new thing introduced with an exclamation mark on his own website. So we should be very excited. Uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Autonomy and Kant's Aesthetics. Thanks, Dom. Thank you very much. I think it, this is my second talk at the London Aesthetics Forum, so it's really nice to be back. And I should, yeah, just reiterate what Stacy said. I am not a historian. I never imagined that I would do this, um, but I'm doing it. Please be gentle on me. If you are a his historian, I know I speak history with an accent. I'm working on it, but it's still there. Uh, so. That is the Plumen 001 light bulb. Elegant, beautiful. If you don't disagree, substitute in another light bulb for your favorite example. Um, and I'd like to talk about this light bulb and about Kant. Uh, many, the, uh, the James Shelley uh, calls this view the default theory of aesthetic value. I call it the party line. It says that what it is for an item to have aesthetic value is for that item to stand in some constitutive relation to the finally valuable experiences, or let's just call them pleasures, of suitably situated spectators. That's what aesthetic values are. They're features and objects, the ground, the disposition to you, whatever, to stand in some constitutive relation to, to pleasures. That's the party line. It's. Uh, a view that people hold without giving arguments. I've never seen a single argument for it. Um, it's furthermore a line that people hold 
without giving responses to objections. They don't feel the need to respond to objections to this kind of view. And Kant is certainly an aesthetic hedonist. He declares that in the very first sentence of the third critique, which is his work on aesthetics. I have this crazy idea that Kant also holds the autonomy thesis, which says that an aesthetic value is a property of an item that figures in reasons to act, such that acting on those reasons is a way of acting autonomously. Of course, I need to tell you what this says, and I will tell you what this says. But first, I just want to point out that it looks as if these two commitments are conflicting. How could Kant both be an aesthetic hedonist and accept the autonomy thesis? Um, what's going on there? So this, so I, I, would, I would like to first say something about how these two claims are consistent with each other and then say something about why I think that Kant does in fact accept the autonomy thesis. There's actually tons of black letter text in the third critique that uh, supports my attribution of the autonomy thesis to him. Uh, I'm also going to suggest that uh, his commitment to the autonomy thesis makes sense of the structure of the third critique, and I'll talk about that in a bit more detail. It uh, also helps us to understand the role of common sense in his aesthetics, which is a vexed issue, and it connects, therefore connects Kant's aesthetics to the rest of his philosophy in very interesting ways. Uh, okay, so that's a, a bit of an overview. So here's the plan. First thing I'm going to uh, distinguish a couple of questions about aesthetic value, then I'll spend a lot of time trying to persuade you that Kant does believe this surprising claim, and then I'm going to spend just one slide talking about why this might be a cool idea, like why this matters to those of us who speak history with an accent. Well, why would we? Why would we care? Um, can't care at all. So let me tell you just very briefly a little bit of autobiography. Why am I doing history now? Well, as Stacy mentioned, I just published this book, uh, *Being for Beauty*, and the book uh, leverages a distinction that is a, I think, a plausible distinction. People have bought it up wholesale. That people like it. Uh, and the distinction hasn't really been taken on board. People have sort of seen it, but they haven't made it do very much work in thinking about aesthetic value. Um, and, and, and I thought, well, what if, we take, what if we take this distinction and then read it back on the history of aesthetics? Maybe the history of aesthetics will look a little bit different. So I was in a conversation with some historians of aesthetics, and I was kind of pushing them, well, what if, what if this distinction? What would Kant make, how would Kant's view look in light of this distinction? I've also written about a mid-20th century South Asian philosopher, Kenji Drajacharya, whose work really turned out to be super cool if you read it with this distinction in mind. Okay, so let me start with that. Here are some uh, aesthetic values. Uh, you might recognize that list. I'll come back to your recognition of that list in a moment. Some exa examples of aesthetic values being unified, being integrated, being dynamic. Uh, and the fact that the light bulb is integrated is an aesthetic value fact. I'm going to call that an aesthetic value fact. And I'm just going to also refer to aesthetic value facts as aesthetic reasons. Okay, so, so far I'm just doing a little bit of definition for you. Okay, so the light bulb is integrated as an aesthetic value fact. 
The dance is somber, is an aesthetic value fact. The argument is vivid, is an aesthetic value fact. These, as I've just suggested, apply to these kinds of facts are found in works of art. They're found in nature. They're found in theoretical discourse. Here's an example from mathematics. They're certainly found in philosophy. There are vivid arguments. Uh, they're found in design. They're found in clothing. They're everywhere. So I don't want you thinking that this is a talk about art. It's a talk about art plus a bunch of, it's a talk about a great deal of art plus a lot, lot more than that. And in fact, the part of content I'm going to be talking about is focusing on the non-art side of, um, of the aesthetic universe. So here's the distinction. One question that we can ask about these values that figure in aesthetic value facts or aesthetic reasons is, what makes them aesthetic? So the fact that uh, a white, uh, white helmet is courageous is a value fact. It's a moral value fact, not an aesthetic value fact. The fact that the double helix model of DNA is explanatorily powerful is an epistemic value fact, not an aesthetic value fact. And so one question you might ask is, what demarcates the domain of aesthetic values, distinguishing them from other kinds of values? Philosophers of the last few decades, thinking about aesthetic value at all, have been obsessed with this. I think it's a bad mistake. We're talking about this So here's a, another question. Let's just accept that these are some aesthetic values. We can ask, what makes them reason-giving? Asking that question, what I call the normative question, is a way of asking, why do, we, why do they matter? Why do they make any difference to us? Why should they make any difference to us? What's significant about them? Something like that. What makes these aesthetic values reason-giving? So when we ask that question, you can hear it in a couple of different ways. Aristotle taught us that there are two kinds of reasons. So there are theoretical reasons. Theoretical reasons, here I'm talking about reasons as facts, right? So they are facts that bear on the question of whether P is the case. They raise, maybe you could say they raise the prob probability of the P. So the fact that the sun is setting on the mountains in the west raises the probability that it's evening. It's a theoretical fact. Uh, and then there are practical reasons. So these are facts also, just like any other kinds of facts, but they bear on the question of what to do. They lend weight to the proposition that an agent should perform some act in the circumstances. So the fact that the sun is setting on the western mountain, so the fact that it's uh, evening in the wilderness is reason to build a fire, or to get inside and away from the mosquitoes. Um, that's an example of a, of a practical reason. And you might think, what about these aesthetic reasons or aesthetic value facts? Are they theoretical or practical? Well, philosophers have tended to sort of think that they're theoretical. So this is uh, uh, Arnold Eisenberg in 1949. He's describing and not endorsing what he calls the standard model of critical communication, which is where you give a reason, this item has these qualities, 
Maybe you have a norm in the back of your mind. Anything that has these qualities is pro tanto good. Maybe not. There's a debate about that. And then the point is that you reach a verdict. So the reason lends weight to the verdict. This picture or poem is good or not so good. On a scale of 1 to 10, it's a 3.5. right? And so we have tended to think of aesthetic reasons as a form of theoretical reasons. I think Eisenberg is right about this. It's kind of messy around the edges, and I'll admit that. But I think this is a mistake. I think aesthetic value facts both raise the probability of the truth of a verdict, and they bear on questions of what we should do. So this is why I think that the normative question is a question about the significance of aesthetic values for us or how they matter. Um, it's not just they matter to the correct judgments that we should make, but they matter to what we do with our lives, what we do in particular circumstances. You add up all those circumstances and you get our aesthetic lives. So I'm going to sideline the demarcation question focus on the normative question, what makes an aesthetic value reason given? And remember, to, uh, I think that uh, uh, that normative question can be heard in a theoretical register or a practical register. I'm going to suggest we focus on the practical register. So I'm going to assume that the fact that this item, this, the light bulb is beautiful is an aesthetic reason for somebody to do something in the sense that that fact that the light bulb is beautiful lends weight to the proposition that they should perform some act. Say, an act of appreciation. They should appreciate the light bulb. Or buy it. Order 12 on Amazon. Whatever the case may be. So there's... Um, there's, so I want to emphasize the uh, practical register of, of aesthetic value facts. So here's a rephrasing of the normative question, taking that into account, focusing on the practical side. The question is, what makes it the case that an item is being beautiful or elegant or what have you lends weight to the proposition that anybody should do anything in any circumstances, whatever the acting question is. So you should be able to see now, with that distinction in play, how Kant could be both an aesthetic hedonist and accept the autonomy thesis. He could think aesthetic values are, say, features in an item that ground a disposition for us to take pleasure. But the reason we have to appreciate beautiful things is not that they give us pleasure. It's true that what makes them aesthetic values is like give us pleasure, but the reason we have to appreciate doesn't exploit that feature of aesthetic value. It might exploit something else. So in fact, the autonomy thesis and aesthetic hedonism are compatible. Okay. So let me uh, then turn to the bigger job, which is um, having established that the two theses are are compatible to try to persuade you that, in fact, Kant holds the autonomy thesis. We're just going to assume he's a hedonist. Everybody accepts he's a hedonist. What about the autonomy thesis? OK, so I told you earlier on that one of the uh, advantages of this interpretation of Kant is it makes sense of the structure of the third critique. 
The third critique is the critique of the power of judgment. And for Kant, it's really important. Uh, commentators have really only taken this on board in the last 10 years. It's really important that the critique of the power of judgment is a critique of aesthetic judgment, part one, and a critique of teleological judgment, which is regular empirical judgment. This is a rose, right? Part two. The two of those are actually flip sides of the same coin. And if you don't think of aesthetics as a flip side of regular cognitive judgment, empirical judgment, um, then you're not getting the whole Kantian story. So nevertheless, I'm going to focus on the, the critique of aesthetic judgment. You'll see me bringing in how it's a flip side of something else. The critique of aesthetic judgment is then divided into four parts. There's the opening section, which gets a lot of attention, which is the analytic of the beautiful. I'm going to tell you what's in that in a second. And then, so Kant says some, some stuff about judgments of beauty. And then he moves on to the sublime. So there's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of like a digression, really a long digression. And then he comes to the, the deduction of pure aesthetic judgment. It is supposed to perform some important purpose. And it's, really, it's been really difficult for commentators to see what the purpose of the deduction is. Some of them say it's just a complete rehashing of the analytic. So some people say that. Um, and it's not. So if we can bring that, its distinctive contribution to the uh, architectonic of the complete book into, into uh, if we can make that crystal clear, that would be good. And then, and then Kant turns to art and genius. And I am just going to sideline those the second part and the fourth part, right? So we're just talking about pure aesthetic judgments now. We're not talking about art. There's a different story about art, and that's where genius comes in. So Kant begins with aesthetic judgments. So the topic is aesthetic judgment. And they are hedonic. They are pleasures. Okay, So they're pleasures. Uh, and however, he's interested in demarcation, just like many philosophers have been. He begins with demarcation. He says, OK, they're hedonic, but these judgments are different from judgments of the agreeable, which are regular pleasure judgments. How are they different? Well, they have these four distinctive characteristics. First, they're disinterested, so they're not connected to desire, which is weird. They're pleasures, but they're not. there are pleasures we don't want. So, <laughs> but that's part of it. Aesthetic judgments imply that everyone should be pleased uh, so when you say the light bulb is beautiful, you're saying, and everyone should find it beautiful. So they please universally. They imply that an item pleases universally. They represent purposiveness without purpose. I'm going to leave, could be silent on that for a minute, although it's really important, and I'm going to say something about it, a lot about it. And then they have necessity. It's, this is a necessity. When I say the light bulb is beautiful, I say you must find it beautiful too. The must is not like in every possible world. It's you should find it beautiful. Just like you must eat all your carrots. They're good for you. That's the must. And in fact, Kant says this. Um, he says, whoever declares something to be beautiful wishes that everyone should approve of the object in question and similarly declare it to be beautiful. So the, so the necessity, what he means by necessity is what we would now call normativity. What's expressed by a should or an ought or a must. 
So that's the analytic of the beautiful, very, very quickly, right? You could see I'm not a historian, I'm just skating through this. What about the deduction? Well, here's the official statement of the purpose of the deduction. He's, Kant says, we need a guarantee of the, legit the legitimacy of a kind of judgment only if the judgment makes a claim to normativity. Right? He says necessity, but he's talking about the show. So I think that what the deduction does is it establishes the normativity of aesthetic judgment, and it will do it by picking up on the first three demarcating features of aesthetic judgment. So many commentators think, this is why they think it's a rehash of the, of the analytic. They think that what he's doing is he's showing that aesthetic judgments have, in fact, have these four features, and he's not. He's vindicating their normativity in a way that takes into account that these judgments are also disinterested, please universe, imply universal pleasure, and represent purposiveness without purpose. So we get it for, by, and at the rest. So the metanormative framework that I gave you, I think, helps us to make sense of the relation between the analytic and the deduction. That is to say, the framework that says that there are aesthetic value facts, which are reasons that lend weight to what we should do. You can see how, why I think that, if I think that the purpose of the deduction is to um, ground the normativity of aesthetic judgment in a way that recognizes the, um, the other characteristics of aesthetic judgments. Now you might think, this is nuts. You might think this is anachronistic to take uh, uh, a framework for thinking about normative reasons that is very much structuring contemporary philosophical thinking and, and project it back on this thinker from 200 years ago. Um, after all, I've said that aesthetic reasons are worldly facts, like the light bulb is beautiful. And uh, Kant seems to be not talking about worldly facts. He seems to be talking about aesthetic judgments. And clearly for him, judgments are mental states. They're pleasures that have something like, like, it's not a content because there's no concept of the beautiful. So there's a tricky thing here about what exactly the judgment is saying. Um, but there's a judgment that, that is a pleasure that is sort of saying something is beautiful, that sort of has implications like everybody else should find it beautiful. Um, but it's certainly, it's a mental state, it's a judgment. So let me just begin by addressing this first issue about the relationship between aesthetic judgments and aesthetic reasons in Kant. So another part of the standard metanormative framework uh, that has informed thinking for 25 years is this distinction between normative reasons and motivating reasons. So uh, the fact that the light bulb is beautiful is a normative reason. It gives you, it's a fact about the world that gives you reason to appreciate the light bulb. It's a fact about the world that lends weight to the, to the proposition that you should appreciate the light bulb. Uh, uh, and uh, motivating reasons are mental states that explain our actions. So um, the fact that the bottle contains water is reason for me to do something, to drink from it. Also, given the other fact that I'm thirsty, um, 
believing that the water, that the bottle contains water, can explain why I drank from it. So notice the difference between the fact about the water in the bottle and my belief about the water in the bottle. And the two can come apart. It could be that the fact is that the bottle contains acetone, so I don't have reason to drink from it, but I believe it contains water. What explains my drinking from it is not that I have reason to drink from it, but rather that I believe that it contains water. And there, what, I, what explains what I do comes apart from what I have reason to do. Obviously, I have no reason to drink this acetone stuff. So, just think about how this works in relation to Kant. So it works because for, for Kant, aesthetic judgment is two things, and people commenting on Kant see this, and they talk about this. The judgment is a state of mind that gives you reason to do something. So the judgment is a state of mind that represents an item as a source of pleasure. And it gives you reason to do something, to do something that enables you to access the pleasure. The thing is that your action of accessing the pleasure is also an aesthetic judgment, right? Because the aesthetic judgment is a state of pleasure. So when you access the pleasure, you're in a state of aesthetic judgment. So uh, judge, aesthetic judgment for Kant has two phases. It's both an act, something that you do, you extract the pleasure, and it's something that explains you're extracting the pleasure. Why did you look at that light bulb? Well, I believed it was beautiful. I had made an aesthetic judgment. So the, the judgment is both a motivation and an act, or it's a motivation that uh, explains you're doing the very act that motivates the doing of that act. You have a kind of a, a, looping, a looping thing going on. In order to sort this out, let's talk about the act as an act of appreciation. So the aesthetic judgment, then, is a state of mind that motivates the act of appreciation. It's just in footnotes, you will say, and the act of appreciation is making an aesthetic judgment. Now, this idea that um, aesthetic judgment is this two-faced thing, I think, has, has permeated philosophy since Kant and done untold damage. Right, because we've, remember, remember how I said we, we tend to think of um, aesthetic judgments as verdicts and aesthetical, aesthetic reasons as, um, as theoretical reasons? It's because we're, 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 it's exactly this model. We're, we're identifying the act with the formation of a, of a judgment, the formation of a, of, a, of a verdict. But this is Kant's view, so I'm going to run with this. All I want to say right now is notice that. Um, now we have an issue about whether the judgment that motivates your appreciating, that is to say you're finding pleasure, is legitimate, is the object in fact a source of pleasure. Or perhaps you might have gone wrong. So I think that the distinction between normative and motivating reasons is there in Kant implicitly. The other thing you might say about how this is just a non-starter in thinking about Kant is, is it true that he thinks that aesthetic reasons are worldly facts? After all, he says, we speak of the beautiful as if beauty were a property of the object. This is in the analytic. And the deduction, he changes his tune, tune entirely. He says, the object and its shape 
people call this the form, make it suitable to the judgment. So he doesn't think the beauty is in the object, but there's something in the object that grounds, correctly grounds, the appreciative response. It's the, there's a ground of beauty. He doesn't think of the beauty in the object because there's no concept of the beautiful, and so there's no property there. But leave that aside. He even, this is my favorite bit in all of Kant, nature has spread beauty so extravagantly everywhere, even at the bottom of the ocean, where it is only seldom that the human eye penetrates. Like, people go around saying he's an anti-realist. What? <laughs> this is right at the beginning of the deduction. So this is like an assumption that he makes in the deduction. So aesthetic reasons are worldly things, <clears throat> in some sense. They're, they're at least the grounders of the contents of the judgments if there are contents there. So here's, here's the takeaway. The, deduct, the task of the deduction, I think, needs to be understood um, in the context of our understanding that when all goes well, our motivating reasons, which explain, our re which explain why we act, align with our normative reasons. So, I, so when all goes well, I drink the water, I drink from the bottle because I can, it contains water, and my motivating reason is my reason for doing what I have reason to do, what I have normative reason to do. I have normative reason to drink from the bottle because it in fact contains water. So in other words, when all goes well, our representation of the reasons that we have matches the reasons that we have, which is just like how we always want things to be, right? Okay, so if that's going on, how should we think of this as looking? So here's kind of the schema I'm going to work with. We've got a fact in the world. Let's just say for now this is beautiful, though maybe for Kant that really means it has a form that grounds something. But look, that can be short line, uh, shorthand. That fact suits, as he puts it, a judgment. This is beautiful. That's the aesthetic judgment. And we have some normative, when all goes well, this is beautiful as a reason for somebody to appreciate it. And then the normative question asks, why? Why is the fact that this is beautiful reason for anybody to do anything at all? Why is it reason for them to appreciate it? So we have a because and we fill in the dots. Okay? So this is just the way that we think about normativity in general these days. If I were to stop here, we would have a, a very contemporary and hence unkantian un approach to normativity. There are two wrinkles, there are two conditions, I think, on a good interpretation of Kant's answer to the normative question that makes it a distinctively Kantian answer. So I'm going to add on to the standard metanormative framework. So here's one condition. Anything that we say to fill in the dots here has got to refer back to the demarcating um, features of aesthetic judgment. So when we fill in the because, we, we have to, like, point to disinterestedness, universality, purposiveness without purpose. So that's what I also said earlier to explain the normativity, the fourth, the fourth moment. And secondly, it's got to require not just a deduction, but a Kantian deduction. 
It's because the deduction isn't just any regular old demonstration that this because is what we would recognize to give us, to source a, a, a that, that what goes into the dots here is what we would recognize as uh, explaining why facts give us reasons. It's got to be a Kantian deduction. What's that? Well, it's got to appeal to a principle that's necessary for us to have any experience at all. If it weren't for this principle, we wouldn't be capable of having experiences at all. And this is where the two parts of the critique of judgment come together. This principle is the principle that both underwrites aesthetic judgment and empirical judgment. So here's an example of how um, you might fill in the because in a very unkantian way. So when I was uh, like in dialogue with these historians, and I, you know, I said, you know, we've got the normative question, demarcation question, what is Kant's answer to the demarcation question? I said, is it this? Fact, this is beautiful, suits you making a judgment. Here's the normativity, the fourth moment, the thing to be explained. That this is beautiful is a reason for somebody to appreciate it because we always have reason to do what brings us pleasure. Not decisive reason, unfortunately, but we have so always have some reason. So the fact that doing an act is a way of getting pleasure is always some reason to do that act, even if it's outweighed by other reasons that we might have. This seems true. And so I said, is that what Kant says? I knew the answer would be no. I'm like, oh, no, that's not Kant. Why isn't it Kant? Well, here's, here's why. Any account should bring in what demarcates aesthetic judgment. And this is just plain old hedonic normativity. It's got no, it pays no attention to disinterestedness, universality, purposiveness without purpose. So this attempt to answer the normative, the normative question fails to meet the first condition on a good interpretation of Kant's approach to the normative uh, question. And also there's no appeal here to a principle that's necessary for having any experience at all. You just think of it this way, could there be creatures who have experiences and are incapable of pleasure? Yeah, sure. Why not? So, neither of those conditions are met. Uh, in seeing that neither of these conditions are met, that should be a clue to us that we need to bring in some more Kantian apparatus. So as we think about the next step, let's bring in that Kantian apparatus. So we begin with the fact this light bulb is beautiful. It doesn't just suit a judgment. It suits a judgment because it engages this, this mechanism, the free play of imagination and understanding. So this is beautiful, suits free play of imagination and understanding. And that either is or grounds, there's a big debate about this, <laughs> is or grounds, I don't care, the judgment that this is beautiful. Um, I'm not going to tell you what free play of imagination and understanding is. Some of you know it's the one bit of Kant that everybody loves. They loved it right when the book came out. It was really influential on the romantics. But I will come back to it a little bit later. Okay? No, I don't want to take that phone call. So, here's another try. Try two. We've got the normativity that this is beautiful as a reason for somebody to appreciate it because the cognitive mechanism is common to all of us. 
So when it comes to beauty, it gives us reason to do what gives anyone pleasure. So I call this the superhedonic proposal. And remember, we need to see if these two conditions are met. Uh, here's Hume. He says, mankind has the most ardent desire of society and is fitted for it by the most advantages. We can form no wish which is not a reference to society. A perfect solitude is perhaps the greatest punishment we can suffer. Every pleasure languishes when enjoyed apart from company and every pain becomes more cruel and intolerable. So it seems to be true that we amp up our pleasures by sharing them with others and we deflate them when we're, uh, when we're consigned to enjoy them in, sol in solitude. But the others here is never everybody else. It's my friends, <laughs> right? It's some people. It's the, it's the in-group and not the out-group. This is how we work. Uh, and Kant sees this possibility and rejection, rejects it. He says, being able to communicate one state of mind carries a pleasure with it that could easily be established empirically and psychologically, not by transcendental deduction, from the natural tendency of human beings to sociability. But that's not enough. When we call something beautiful, the pleasure that we feel is expected of everyone else in the judgment of, judge, of, judgment of taste is necessary. Now, the, um, the cognitive mechanism of free play gets everyone on side. So presumably his point is the necessity, that is to say the normativity is not the normativity that we get with the aesthetic. It's still plain old hedonic normativity, just taking into account that we get more pleasure when we share pleasure. So Kant recognizes the possibility of the superhedonic proposal and he rejects it. And he rejects it if you think about it because we don't get all the demarcating features of aesthetic judgment appearing in the explanation here. We do get universality. The cognitive mechanism gets us universality and ensures that we're all gonna respond the same way. And we get disinterestedness. The cognitive mechanism, the free play, is gonna give us pleasure without the connection to the faculty of desire. But what about propositiveness without purpose? That's not in the story. And the reason it's not in the story is that it appears as the transcendental principle that is um, uh, that appears in a Kantian deduction, a deduction that um, uh, that, that, that um, explains how we do something in a certain way. Because um, were it not for that, we wouldn't have any experience at all. So. Here's the autonomy proposal then. So this is gonna bring it all in. This is beautiful, suits free play of imagination and understanding, that grounds our pleasure. Why is it the case that this is beautiful? Is any is reason for anybody to appreciate it? Well, because to engage in cognitive free play is to act autonomously, and anyone always has reason to act autonomously. So two play claims here. Now, it's not the silly idea that free play is autonomous, end of story. That's not it at all, so don't ask me any questions about that. That's not at all what the idea is. Rather, you can even say, you know, don't think of free play as free at all, just think of it as a kind of play. Right? Autonomy is something else. So let me say something about the general idea 
that anyone always has reason to act autonomously for Kant. But I'm going to, I'll say something quickly about that and then focus on the second thing. So the quick thing to say about this is um, Kant thinks that um, anyone, he does think that anyone always has reason to act autonomously. But there's no agreement on why he accept that, accepts that. So some people say uh, that this principle, the one in red, is grounded in something deeper. Uh, Barbara Herman says it's um, grounded in the free will, the goodness of the free will. Paul Geyer says everyone always has reason to act autonomously because that's a way of respecting human dignity. Uh, Alan Wood says it, by doing that we realize our humanity and our, and our rational nature. And then there are lots of people who think, in, for Kant, this is just primitive. So Honora O'Neill thinks that the principle that always, anyone always has reason to act autonomously is a primitive in Kant system. I'm going to take no sides in any of this. I just want you to accept that this is true, because the real action for the aesthetics comes in looking at why you might think, why Kant might think that to engage in cognitive free play is to act autonomously. So, autonomy uh, for Kant is self-legislation. And there's two ways in which self-legislation comes into the third critique. And the first is at the level of what commentators call the principles of the faculties. So let me tell you a bit, uh, something about free play and the principle of purposiveness. So in empirical judgment, like, oh, that's a light bulb, that's an example of empirical judgment, you have um, two faculties, imagination and understanding, working with each other to produce that judgment. The imagination is this faculty that supplies structured sense impressions, so not just the messy data, the blooming, buzzing confusion that comes from the world, but structured sense impressions. And understanding supplies a concept. And so imagination sends this structured sense impression upstairs, and imagination goes, oh, is that a basket? No. <laughs> is, that a, <laughs> is that a comb? No. It's a light bulb. Yay. <laughs> OK, so that's kind of how it works. <laughs> it's exactly how Kant explained it. <laughs> um, what about aesthetic judgment? In aesthetic judgment, you have the same two faculties. Um, but they're in free play. What does that mean? Well, now you have imagination supplying structured sense impressions, sending these forms upstairs, and understanding keeps on supplying concepts. So it never reaches static equilibrium. It's, a state, it's in a state of dynamic equilibrium. It's continuously trying out new concepts. Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And then it's notice itself. It notices itself applying these concepts. It notices itself. It's reflecting on itself, as Kant puts it, and comes up with, it's beautiful. He says that the imagination and understanding enliven each other through mutual agreement in this, in this process. So that's the free play. OK, where does purposiveness and purpose come in? Purposiveness without purpose. Well, each faculty has a constitutive principle. Each faculty operates according to a principle that makes it the faculty that it is. And there's a principle that makes the faculty of judgment the faculty that it is. 
And that's the principle of purposiveness. And the principle of purposiveness just says, remember the free play, the interaction between imagination and understanding? It says, hey, judgment, go out there and look at the world and look for patterns and designs that you're going to see as um, fitted to your capacity to understand the world. So see the world. So it, it's, it says you're going to have to look for patterns and designs um, in the natural world that seem to fit our cognitive capacities. Or maybe it says, find nature ready to fit your own capacity for apprehension. Uh, so uh, the world underdetermines the concepts that understanding is going to apply. And so there are lots of different co conceptual schemes as it were that understanding can apply. And uh, the principle of judgment just says, Find a way of uh, applying concepts to structured sense impressions so that, um, so that you get some stability. You get um, some stability and compactness and systematicity and other features like that. So that's the principle that judgment gives to itself. It orders itself to do this thing. It says, don't, let the, don't just see a bunch of confusion. Find order. Find order. But in free play of imagination and understanding, judgment is aware of itself as ready to find nature ordered in some way that fits the apprehension of judgment. So when we go into the state of free play, we think, yeah, look, judgment is this thing that's telling itself to find order. Look at how it's like trying on these different ways of finding order one after another. So this. I've been really sketchy about this, I know. It's really hard to understand the principle of purposiveness once you get down to the details of the text and the context of the larger philosophy. I just want three claims that I think anybody should accept, no matter how much we disagree about the details. And the claims are, first, that the principle of purposiveness governs the faculty of judgment. Kant believes this. Definitely does. This principle is legislated by judgment to itself. He says that. The constitutive principle of, um, of judgment is the principle of purposiveness, and it's given to judgment by itself. And reflected ju ju judgment on the capacity of judgment to give itself this uh, principle is a source of pleasure. He thinks that. So here, this is a passage from the first introduction where he like, really lays this out. And this is the introduction to the third critique, so he's kind of like telling you what he really wants to say. Aesthetic judgment is, not, is grounded not merely in the feeling of pleasure and displeasure in itself alone, but at the same time in a rule of the power of judgment, which is thus legislative with regard to the conditions of reflection a priori, and demonstrates autonomy. And then he then says, I'm going to call this hey autonomy because judgment has a special characteristic, it gives a rule to itself whereas reason, reason gets the rule for desi to desire in the moral case, etc. Um, so that's one reason to think um, that Kant believes that to engage in cognitive free play is to act as autonomously. It's to do a thing that, um, that simply um, involves uh, a reflection on purposiveness without having a purpose of applying any particular empirical concept. 
That's at the level of the principles. So there's one other way in which this comes out, and then we're then we have a wrap on things, and that's at the level of common sense. So common sense appears uh, twice in two places in the third critique. It appears in the analytic where Kant says, you know, we need to appeal to common sense to justify judgments that contain a should. That's the normativity, right? And then he comes back to it in the deduction. It's really interesting because he comes back to it at the end of the deduction. He spends a lot of time on it, and commentators are puzzled about what's going on there. And I think it makes perfect sense. So common sense in the deduction is a set of policies that we adopt as agents. We don't adopt the principle of propulsiveness. It's baked in. But we adopt the, the, the policies of common sense. And there's three of them. Here they are. Think for yourself. Think in the positions of others and think consistently. Kant then says, think consistently. You get that for free when you do the other things. It's a weird notion of consistency, but that's what he says. So what about think for yourself? Well, he says, thinking for yourself mitigates, but it's not what we think. Right? He says, this is the way not to be prejudiced. Think for yourself. Think in the position of others so that you mitigate subjective private response. And I think uh, there's been a lot of interest in recent, in the last few years, in the fact that common sense seems to be the common thread across Kant's philosophy. It's there in the earliest non-philosophical works. It goes all the way through to his late writings. It's in all three critiques and groundwork. Um, it seems to be a unifying feature of Kant's work. Uh, and so people like uh, Alex Cohen, Samantha Mathurin, and Melissa Merritt have written a lot about this recently. Um, and this is the O'Neill interpretation. She presses the idea that uh, in adopting the policy of common sense, we recognize that in any disagreement, in any area where we are encountering differences between each other, we want there to be a plurality of parties at the table whose thinking and judging is independent because that's a good method to um, getting what we want. And in this case, getting what we want is being able to respond to beauty wherever it happens to lie. So following these policies enable us, enables us to act on the beauty that's out there. The policies are policies of reason. There's a bit of a debate about this, and I don't know what to think about that, but I'm just going to accept it. Hence, they're self-legislated. So reason gives us these policies. They don't come from anywhere else. Reason gives us these policies, so they're self-legislated. Hence, to act on them is to act autonomously. So you get the second way in which Kant thinks that to engage in cognitive free play is to act autonomously. So why do we have reason to appreciate the light bulb? Well, when you do, the, when you do that, you engage in cognitive free play. You thereby act autonomously, and we always have reason to act autonomously. One last slide. I've been talking a lot about Kant. Kant is a kind of a difficult figure in aesthetics. On the one hand, he attracts a lot of attention from historians because he's so influential and so difficult. On the other hand, nobody believes a bit of it. And people outside philosophy who think about aesthetics tend to think of aesthetics as Kantian, and they say, well, so aesthetics is a load of garbage of no use to us. And so, 
They have everybody has difficulty with disinterestedness, universality, God knows what purpose, etc. So it would be kind of nice if this isn't just like a pretty a nice story about Kant, but we could actually care. So look, Kant's faculty of psychology, the principle of purposiveness, forget about it. We're not going there. That's maybe okay 200 years ago, but it's just way too out of step with our way of thinking about the the other demarcation stuff, disinterestedness, universality, we don't really need that. We don't really want it. Nah. Okay. But there's a grain of something attractive, maybe I'll put it that way. I was going to say truth, but maybe attractiveness is better in this picture. So the, the light bulb is beautiful, is reason for you to appreciate it because it had. Um, in appreciating it, because we have reason to do what that shared pleasure, not pleasure absolutely everybody. That's a very demanding and perhaps ugly thing. <laughs> do we really want that? But what that shared pleasure, there's something nice in that idea, something actually explanatory of our aesthetic interactions. They do seem to have this social character. Alternatively, because we have reason to do what expresses autonomy, Maybe the takeaway comes from seeing that these, in a way, are closely related, um, as long as you take the common sense point on board. So we've, said, we've seen that shared pleasures matter more for being shared. And autonomy, in the sense of giving ourselves the rules by which we're going to operate, is something that we do to enable sharing, according to O'Neill. She says, beings who share a world cannot base the sharing on adopting unshareable principles. But maybe there's something, a nice takeaway here. Okay, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to your questions. All right, um, we'll operate with a hand finger rule. So if you have a new question, please raise your hand and follow up finger, and we'll start with you. Thank you. Um, sorry for my intrusible. Um, yesterday I was running a workshop on disinterestedness uh, based on Kant. So I'm interested in saying that we cannot avoid it because without disinterestedness or without the disinterest, we do not have the free play of the faculties, the harmony of the faculties. 